following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing in our study of Galatians here in chapter 2. And last week, you may recall if you were here, Pastor York took us through several verses that really touch on, on the very core nature of our salvation, that we are justified by our faith in Christ Jesus, not by works of the law, because as Paul wrote, by works of the law, no one can be justified. These were Paul's words to Peter. Remember the context, Peter uh, had sacrificed this principle in the face of pressure from people around him, from Jewish Christians intent on upholding the Jewish law, and Peter, in in caving to to their pressure, uh, uh, set forth or set the context for Paul's words. Tonight we're going to focus on verses 17 through 21 of Galatians chapter 2. Uh, But I'd like to start reading in verse 15 just for context. So if you'd read with me from Galatians chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ." It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loves me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. God, our Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We pray that your word through your spirit, which is still speaking to your people, would apply this to our hearts and give us a greater understanding of you and love for you through your word tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's really hard to overestimate the importance of what Paul's talking about in these verses. Justification, of course, is a big word. It's a theological word. It's a theological word that we love to throw around in Reformed circles. Justification is a a word that perhaps we say sometimes without thinking of all that that it means, or perhaps some of you have heard it and thrown it around without without really thinking about what it means at any point. And um, I think it's important to, to remember, when we're talking about justification, we're talking about how can you and I who are sinful people, be accepted by, 
approved by, brought into the presence of a holy, righteous God who cannot dwell in the presence of sin? That's the question of justification. In fact, it's the question in many ways uh, of life. How can we as sinners be accepted into the presence of our Creator, our God? Dr. Welch, I was listening to some lectures uh, by this man who's a a counselor uh, down at uh, CCEF, a a Christian counseling organization in Philadelphia. And he pointed out in one of uh, his lectures recently that I was listening to that... uh, the, the issue of our acceptance before a holy God is a question that all people wrestle with. And it's, it's a challenge, how can I be accepted before God, that is a key fact in the lives of all people, whether they're Christians or not. He said the, the shame of coming in the presence of a God, knowing that we are sinners whose every secret, whose every thought will be found out, is a terrifying thought. And he said that, that the fear of death, the, the shame and sense of inadequacy that we so often feel, the questions of our, of our self-worth, the justifications and excuses we make for ourselves are all issues that come out in every person's life that are wrestling with this question. Who am I a sinner and how do I stand before this God who is holy and righteous, my creator, I'm going to stand before him again. Whether that's the conscious train of thought or a completely subconscious train of thought in the life of a person who does not acknowledge God, this is a key fact that we all face. I would guess that many of you have probably been asked the question at some point, maybe in a membership interview here at our church or another one, maybe by a parent or a school teacher, is this scenario that many of us are asked in the church. And if you were to die tonight and come before the gates of heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you in? What would you say? A question that that we're all very familiar with. But I think if you think about this question, maybe we're so used to giving the answer that we've been taught in Sunday school that we we breeze by what many people would, would say or respond to that question if we were to poll the population. And I would imagine if you were to poll the population with this question, you would get a lot of answers like, well, I'm a pretty good person. Why, why not? Or, or I've done a lot more good things in my life than I've done bad things. Or, or um, I would sure hope that God would see that I'm trying my best. Or maybe you, you'd even get a response of anger. Because a lot of times anger is, is, is a, a reaction to or a cover for the insecurity we feel at being put in the spot on the question like that. This guilt, this shame, this feeling of inadequacy as we wrestle with, well, I sure hope that I'm good enough, or I would hope that God would see I've done more good things than bad, or I, and you can put all of these words in here, again, gets at this same principle. At the core of our self-awareness is this realization that we cannot be good enough, we cannot earn, we cannot live lives that meet the approval and acceptance of a just and a holy God. There is no one of us on our own that's going to show up and God will say, wow, I'm extending an invitation to you because I want you with me. It's not going to happen and we know it's not going to happen. And so there's the issue of justification and there's the issue with what Paul's saying here in the context of Galatians chapter 2. We cannot be justified based upon our works, the works that we do according to the law that God has given 
And so our only hope is a justification, an acceptance by God that is based upon faith in Christ Jesus. It's our only hope. I think it was with this in mind that J.I. Packer wrote this. He said, when we let the thought of justification by faith drop out of our minds, the true knowledge of salvation drops out with it and cannot be restored until the truth of justification by faith is back in its proper place. When Atlas falls, everything that rests on his shoulders falls with him. It's our faith in Christ, our abandoning ourselves and our desires for the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ, the one who died in my place and rose for my life. It's when we abandon ourselves upon him, this Savior, in faith in him alone that leads to acceptance by a righteous God, a justification by faith alone. This is the truth that's at the core here of Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 2. And that's really his focus in verses 15 and 16. But we arrive at verse 17, and this is really our focus for, for tonight. Paul, having laid out this principle of justification by faith, this principle that our only hope is in Christ Jesus, in his work, rather than our own. We get to verse 17, and it shouldn't surprise us when we arrive to, to verse 17. Remember, Paul's in dialogue here with a group of Jewish Christians who are intent upon encouraging obedience or requiring obedience to the law. And we shouldn't be surprised that, that there's perhaps some counter-arguments that these Jewish Christians want to make um, or have made against Paul. I like to, you know, Paul, of course, is writing a letter from one perspective, but as he raises objections, I think we can picture, and I like to picture this sort of dialogue back and forth between Paul and the Jewish Christians that he's conversing with or arguing with. And, and as, as I picture that, I can sort of see Paul laying out his argument for justification by faith. And, and here behind verse 17, in my mind at least, I sort of picture these, these Jewish Christians sort of smugly listening to Paul with this smirk on their face, ready to sort of lay out their trump card and say, wow, Paul, you know, that's a great argument you've made for justification by faith, but, but just one question, Paul. We, we have an argument we would like to share with you that's going to bring your, your whole justification by faith thing crashing down. And their argument, which you can clearly see behind verse 17, the question Paul asks is, is this. See, Paul, they would say, if we can believe in Jesus, if we can just say, Jesus, I believe in you, and come to him by faith, and we don't have to obey the law that he's given in order to be accepted, isn't Christ enabling us to keep on sinning? See, we don't have to obey the works of the law anymore. We just come to him by faith. So voila, faith, here we are. Isn't Christ enabling or allowing us to continue to sin, Paul? That's the, the question that's, that's being asked here. I think uh, you know, this question really comes up in a lot of conversations. I, I was struck as I thought about this, about uh, some good friends of mine in college. They were uh, uh, Catholic Christians, very serious about their faith and their doctrine. I remember them coming to me and saying to me, Chris, if, if justification by faith is really true, like, like you're arguing for here, isn't this really a, a fiction, a falsehood? God's saying you're righteous, but you're really not. And you can just keep on sinning, and God's saying you're righteous, but you're not. You're still sinners. Isn't Christ declaring you just, but allowing you to just keep on sinning? It's the same principle behind what they're asking me there. 
And this is Paul's argument, or this is the question Paul wants to respond to. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Is he enabling or supporting or allowing sin to exist in our lives if we just have to believe in him or have faith in him and we're saved? This, I think, should be a question that we wrestle with as Christians at times too. Because we sin. We sin. How is it that we as, as, as people who still commit sins are going to come before this holy God? Where's the ground of our hope? And that's what Paul's going to lay out here. So we want to look at two arguments. Paul gives two arguments here in these verses to knock down this, this counter-argument of the Jewish Christians, to support our assurance in Christ based on faith alone. So let's look at these two arguments. First of all, Paul argues that it is not Christ that enables sin, but rather the law is the one that enables or magnifies sin. Paul gives kind of a, a cryptic phrase. It's probably not immediately evident when we read verse 18 what Paul's saying. Paul, of course, responds to the, the question first by just declaring, certainly not. Christ is not enabling or a servant of sin. But then he says this in verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What's Paul talking about there? What's Paul saying in this phrase, If I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, Paul's saying, look, he says, if I rebuild a system of laws for myself to keep, if I rebuild or establish again a requirement or a set of requirements that I have to keep in order to be accepted by God, I'm rebuilding a law. I'm rebuilding a set of laws that say, if you keep that, then you'll be accepted by God. So if, if, if we have to re- rebuild the law in order to be accepted by, by God, then um, we are once again attempting to be justified by what we do. I rebuild the law as the requirement of my acceptance. But if we rebuild the law and we think about what us, Paul has told us about the law, then we know the only thing we're going to get out of the law is more knowledge of our sin. You might think about what Paul says back in Romans 3.20. Back in Romans 3.20, Paul said this. He said, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Which should sound familiar. We just read that here in Galatians. But then he continues, since through the law came the knowledge of sin. What does the law do? The law by itself does not have power to save. The law by itself shows us our sin. It magnifies or reveals our sin. The law shows us our sin, powerless to do anything but to show us our sin and show us that we can't keep it. So building up a system of laws to obey doesn't solve the problem of our sin. It only shows us our sin. So you see Paul's first argument here. He says, Christ isn't the one enabling sin. The law is the one that's going to prove our sinfulness. If I rebuild a system of laws, I'm just showing myself to be a bigger sinner. And that's Paul's first argument here. I think uh, his statement here immediately brings to mind this picture from a, a classic children's book. I, I remember, for some reason, this is the book that I remember more vividly than any other book that my mom used to read to me when I was, uh, was growing up. Perhaps some of you have read it to children or grandchildren, Mike Mulligan and the Steam Shovel. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the classic work. But um, in this classic 
book, Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel are getting pushed out and replaced by the new big bad diesel steam shovels. And Mike Mulligan has to uh, try to get work for himself and he wins a contract digging the basement of a new town hall. And the deal is either he will dig the basement in one day or the the township won't have to pay for the new town hall. And so the book you know, shows us Mike Mulligan digging as fast as he can. He's got to dig it in one day. And, and it says repeatedly that Mike Mulligan worked harder and faster and better than he had ever worked in, in his entire life. But you're digging, digging a large basement here. You're not digging from the outside. You're digging from down in the cellar. And it comes to the end of the day and Mike Mulligan finishes the cellar in one day only to realize he didn't leave himself a way out. And he's just dug the basement with himself stuck in it. He dug better and faster than he'd ever dug before only to find himself sitting, walled in, trapped by this four walls of a cellar. And so smugly the town mayor declares that the job isn't done. He's not out and he doesn't get paid. And I think this is exactly what our efforts to try to keep the law are like. We try to keep the law, and we can do it better and faster than we've ever done in our entire life. We can be the best law keeper we've ever done, but if that's the system we're using, if the law keeping is what we're relying on, we're going to come to the end of the day and find that our best efforts have left us clearly trapped in a cellar with no hope of salvation. And we're going to find an accuser with a smug smile on his face looking at us and saying, the job's not done. That's what the law does. It shows us our sin. It can't save us. And so that's Pearl's first argument here. We are not going to be able to save ourselves by the law. The law can't do it, Jewish Christians. We need something else. We need something else that's going to bring us acceptance before God. And so that turns then to Paul's second argument. If the law can't do it, what the Jewish Christians are proposing is impossible, Paul says, then we need to look in the opposite direction and see the glorious truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ. The gospel of acceptance by God through faith. And this is what we get in verses 19 and 20. Paul here talks about dying and living. Death and and resurrection that happens to us with Christ. I've told uh, this to some of my students, so this may be a repeat of this story, but as I was a student in college, I took my first Greek class from a a, uh, professor by the name of Lorna, Lorna Holmes. Lorna Holmes stood four foot 11 inches tall, and she would walk in, and she would start teaching us Greek. She was quite the character. She would give us quizzes and lie down on the table to take a nap while we, we uh, took our quizzes. You know, it's a thing all teachers want to do, right? Sleep, sleep whenever they can throughout the day. But uh, uh, Dr. Holmes, as we called this uh, four foot 11 uh, sleeping quiz giving professor, um, offered one time to allow uh, or to, to uh, take a few of us through the book of Galatians in Greek. And Dr. Holmes was not a Christian, but she knew that all of the students taking Greek were Christians. So she said, why don't we read through Galatians together? And I remember coming to this passage here, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I remember translating that verse, and Dr. Holmes just looked at it, and she said, that's what it says. Who knows what that means? Let's move on. And 
I think this, from someone who doesn't know Christ, what in the world does it mean to say we died with Christ and Christ is now alive in us? That is the mystery of the gospel. That as Dr. Rogers said earlier, we must believe in order to see. What is Paul saying here? What is this mystery of the gospel that's at the core of the hope that we have in Christ? Well, Paul's second argument here, why is it that we can say that justification by faith does not enable us to sin? We can say that, says Paul, because justification by faith brings us into a union with Christ Jesus such that we actually die. We die to the old self. Our old sinful self dies with Christ. We are crucified in our union with Christ. Does our body literally fall over dead? No. But our old man, being united with Christ by faith, dies with him. We are united with him in his death. And then, through our union with Christ, we are raised to life in Christ. Christ then lives in us. There is a death and a resurrection that happens here through faith that makes all the difference in how we're going to live. See, at the core of this argument is one of the central truths of the gospel. At the core of the argument here is the fact, the truth, of our union with Christ. The truth that that salvation isn't something that Jesus just kind of looks at and says, hmm, yeah, you believe in me, great, you can be saved. No, salvation at its core is us being joined to, united to, Jesus in a relationship, in a union. Note the phrases. If you look at at verses 19 and and 20, here, look at how Paul writes this. He talks about how we're, we're endeavoring to be justified in Christ. And we're crucified with Christ. And Christ now is living in me. You see how these prepositions in and with are all throughout the passage, emphasizing that we're joined to, we're together with, we're united with and in Christ. We have a union here, such that, that what happened to Christ is counted as having happened to us. Because he died, we died, and because he now is alive, we now are alive in this union that is accomplished through faith. And so, what Paul says is, look, If you have responded to the call of the gospel by faith, you have been united to Jesus. And that means you've been united to him in his death. Something about you and your old sinful self has died. And you've been united to him in his resurrection. And something now is alive in you. And what is that? It's Christ Jesus himself. It's his spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that Christ sends to us and and, and fills, with, it, uh, fills us with that we now have Christ and the Spirit that he sends living in us. As a result, we've died to our sinful self. We live to God, or as Paul says here, Christ lives in us. And so it's no longer just me living out my life, which was defined by my sin. But if I've trusted Christ as my Savior, if I've, if I've run to him and he's now alive in me, His life is the life-giving force that drives my life. He now is the defining factor of who I am. Death and life, crucifixion, resurrection, that's the pattern of Jesus' life. It's also the pattern of our life if we've been united to him by faith. You see what Paul's saying here. He says, 
how in the world could I keep on sinning if I've put my faith in Christ? When putting my faith in Christ isn't just some random decision I make to, oh, well, yeah, I guess I'll believe in Jesus, or, oh, yeah, I, yeah, God exists. I think That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an abandoning of ourselves upon Christ as our only hope, such that we're united to him. And our desires and our system of rules, our wants, our expectations, all of that dies with Christ and is raised again as Christ lives in us. If that's what we're doing, then a real change, a real change has and must have occurred in us. No one can undergo death and resurrection without something changing inside of them. No one can see their sinful self crucified with Christ and have the Spirit of God now living in you, a new life in Christ without some change occurring. This is exactly what Dr. Rogers was talking about this morning when he said that someone traded from the Cardinals to the Phillies can't continue to wear the same uniform. A uniform must have been changed. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, uh, someone who loved history would put it this way. He would say, how in the world would a slave who had been rescued through the Underground Railroad want to go back and become a slave again of his harsh master? There's a new reality that doesn't define them anymore. Or as John Stott put it, he said, our justification takes place when we are united to Christ by faith. And someone who is united to Christ is never the same person again. It's not just his standing before God which has changed, although that has changed. It is he himself. He himself is radically, permanently changed by his union with Christ. And of course... None of this is saying that we are perfect or will be perfect. None of this is saying that our expectation in this life should be perfection. But it's saying that we are united to Christ. His death is our death. His resurrection is our life. This means, yes, His blood is enough to cover our failures. But it also means that we have become new people. We have been renewed in His image and are being renewed in His likeness. We cannot come to Jesus and be united with Jesus and not be changed at our core. This is Paul's argument, second argument. First of all, the law can't bring us into acceptance by God. Secondly, when we say we're justified by faith, we're justified by a faith that unites us to Christ so that we've died with him and have risen again with him. That is something that must change us. Look also, finally, at at a sort of... uh, sort of an add-on comment, sort of a a nail in the coffin that Paul adds in verse 21. Having made these two main arguments, Paul adds this. He adds in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And these Jewish Christians are saying, well, you know, you're you're really nullifying the grace of God if you can just continue to be a sinner um, and be saved by by faith. And he says, no, I am not the one nullifying the grace of God. You who think that your righteousness, law-keeping, can save you. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You might picture it this way. You can imagine, perhaps, a story uh, of a rescue. A rescue of a man who decides he's going to run into a burning building to rescue people. But what if in that building, the only people present are adults who are fully capable of climbing out of the house themselves. 
Imagine the storyline of a man running into the house, dying in the flames, just as all of the adults in the house safely crawl out the window on the other side of the building. What are we going to think about that story? Well, some, some might admire that person's willingness to, to die, but the story is going to be this man died in vain. The people were able to get out themselves. But now imagine another scenario where a man runs into a house because there's a helpless infant in a crib who cannot get out. And imagine the difference in the story if this, if this man runs into the house and, and as the baby can do nothing but hold its arms up, he rescues the baby, gets the baby out of the house, and yet dies in the process. That's the story of a savior. That's the story of a rescue. You see what Paul's saying here. If we can be saved by keeping the law, we don't need a savior. What's Christ doing hanging on a cross if we can be saved by keeping the law? Christ died, went through death to no purpose if we could be saved, could be accepted by God by keeping the law. No, it is only because we are helpless, only because we have no possibility of salvation that Christ died. The grace of God is evident. The status of Savior belongs to Christ precisely because we were helpless with no hope apart from the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is Paul's statement. It is not the grace of God that enables sin. It's not justification by faith. It's the law that enables sin. When we come to Christ by faith, we are united to Christ such that a death and resurrection happens. And that does not enable sin. It yields changed people who are renewed in his likeness. And finally, if law-keeping could save us, Christ died for nothing. Here, Paul thoroughly dismantles the argument of the Jewish Christians. Well, how, are, how are we to respond here? How, how do we respond to the arguments that Paul is making here? What do we say in light of what Paul has described? First and, and most obviously, I think there's nothing for us to do as a first response than stand and wonder at the grace of God. Worship, sing praise to our Savior is the only first response. You'll notice that the songs we're singing tonight overflow with praise to Jesus Christ, the Savior of of matchless worth. Who is this Christ to sing, to sing of our God, to sing of our Savior, to worship the one, to declare his praises, the one who has done this for us. Just look look at the language that Paul uses in verse 20 and 21. When he says, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And look what he says here, who loved me, who gave himself for me. Do you see the, the personal language that Paul uses here? The Son of God loved me. The Son of God died for me. Jesus died so that I, a sinner who had rejected him, could be united to him in close fellowship. Jesus Christ came and suffered as a man, going through death on a cross for me. You see Paul's amazement here. The Son of God loved me. How? How could God, the Holy God, love me? All we can do is sing hallelujah, what a Savior, that the Son of God would die for me. 
That's the first thing we come away from this. It's just an overwhelming picture of who God is, what he has done in Christ Jesus, out of love for us rebellious sinners. Secondly, um, I want to bring out perhaps a little bit more of a a theological application uh, to this as well. The most important thing we do as we walk away from this is to worship and to praise. But this also helps us understand something of our theological tradition. I think as we see how Paul navigates what justification by faith is, it helps us understand more clearly some of the controversy behind this historical division between Protestants and Catholics. You may know if you study church history and love church history that that at the Reformation, when, when the Reformers split from the Catholic Church, the issue of justification was at the core of the controversy. So what does this controversy look like? What's what's the difference between what we believe and what our uh, Catholic uh, Christians would believe? Well, I think this passage helps us. To start, we should understand the Catholic Church does not teach that we are saved by works. The Catholic Church never has taught and doesn't teach that we are saved by works. But what the Catholic Church does say is that our acceptance with God at the last day rests both on our faith in God, and how we live that out. In other words, it's a faith and works. No Catholic that I know would say, works alone save you. But it is this dual category of, we trust in Christ, yes, but then we receive strength so that we can do, so that we can obey. And it's this dual faith and works category that the Catholic Church teaches uh, as the ground for our justification. As a result, the way we act, though in Catholic doctrine it's important to note that they would say strengthened and supported by the grace of God, nevertheless, how we act plays a role in how we are justified and how we are accepted by God. But as Luther and Calvin read, and and Galatians, of course, was a core text for Luther and Calvin as they um, looked into and developed their understanding of justification, they charted the course of our disagreement with Catholicism by making our justification, our, our, our acceptance by God, and how we act, how we behave, both of them rest upon faith, upon this union with Christ that comes by faith. See, for Luther and Calvin, we are accepted by God by faith alone, not by what we do. But that same faith that leads us to be accepted by God also unites us to Christ so that it's impossible for us to keep living the same as we did before. And so our changed life also rests on the same faith that justifies us. You see what, you see what, they, what they were doing. Faith never leaves us the same person. So as they famously, famously said, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. John Calvin liked to talk about the twofold benefit of redemption where faith unites us to Christ so that we are both accepted by God and we are changed more and more into his likeness. Faith is at the core. And faith is what leads to this changed life and our acceptance by God. This is uh, this text here then, that responding to God in faith is not just God saying, well, great, you believe in me, ta-da, I'll declare you accepted. No, responding to God in faith brings about this union where we actually die with Christ. We are counted as dead, crucified with our Savior. 
through our union with him. And then we are resurrected to a newness of life so that we are renewed in his image. So we're not risking making justification by faith some free process that doesn't change us because faith unifies us with Christ and cannot help but leave us different people in the image of our Savior. This helps us very much, I think, understand where we are and how we understand what we mean by faith bringing about justification, justification by faith alone, and where we would depart or disagree from those uh, Catholic Christians who would make our justification dependent upon what we do. Paul's statements here are very central to that. Finally, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about one more application. This application that this passage calls us very actively to examine our hearts and to examine our lives. You know, perhaps you're sitting here thinking, well, justification by faith brings me into union with Christ. And when I come into union with Christ, I've died with him and I have been resurrected with him so that I'm a new person and I'm renewed in his image. But I still sin. What happened? What happened with this resurrection life of Christ? If I'm still making mistakes, or sometimes not mistakes, but willfully doing what I know I shouldn't do. What's going on here? I know I'm supposed to be changed by Christ and have Christ living in me, but I'm not perfect. So how do I sort through that? I think we'll have uh, a lot of time to work through this later in Galatians. If you're thinking ahead, Galatians chapter 5 talks about this war that's going on within us, this, this war, this battle between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And so we'll have plenty of time to, to look at this battle that, ta- uh, that, that it talks about. But for now, we can say perfection is not the expectation in this life. Sanctification is not an immediate goal that is accomplished. Theologians like to talk about an already and a not yet. When Christ enacts in, in, in our hearts faith in our Savior, something is immediately, fully, finally, and completely accomplished. And yet there's also something that we're waiting for that last day to see the fullness and the perfection of what Christ has worked out for us. And this sanctification, this living in light of who God is, this living out the Son of God living in us, this process of being the holy people that God has called us to be, is something that we're walking on this path, seeing Christ continue to transform us, and yet awaiting the perfection, waiting the completion of that at the last day. Perhaps we can take hope in, in what John says in 1 John chapter 2 when he talks about how all of us sin. If anyone says he doesn't sin, he lies. But for those of us, when we do sin, we have a perfect sacrifice who covers our sins in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Christ's blood covers our sins. It covers the sins we have committed. It covers the sins we will commit. Perfection is not immediately gained. But here in this passage, I think, as we focus on Paul's response to the Jewish Christians, as we think about Paul's statements that we are alive to God, that the Son of God is living in us, I think there's a a very, very stark call to us to also examine our lives and to see where we need to live out more faithfully the life Christ lives in us. You are alive to God, Paul says, so live like it. Perhaps the question we could could ask is, how is the gospel, 
How is the truth of Christ's sacrifice for you, of Christ's Spirit living in you, of the life that the Son of God now lives in you, how is that truth of the gospel impacting the decisions you're making and the way you live your lives? And you can think of all sorts of scenarios. We can make them very specific. How is the truth of the Son of God dying for you, rising for you, and now living in you, how is that truth impacting how you talk to your children today? How is the truth of Jesus Christ living in you impacting how we relate to our spouses or our family today? How is the truth of Christ Jesus by His Spirit living in us impacting how we interact with those neighbors who have a dog that's barking at three in the morning every night or, or who yell themselves and wake us up at three in the morning or who you, know, you put in whatever neighborly you know, controversy you'd like to. How is the truth of the Son of God alive in you impacting how you relate to them? How is the truth of the Son of God alive and living in you impacting what you want and what you desire? How is it impacting how you define success or the goals that you have for your lives? How is it impacting how I spend my time? When I have a block of time ahead of me, how is the fact that the Son of God is living in me impacting how I use that time? How is it impacting my identity? How does it impact how I see myself, who I say that I am? The truth that the Son of God is living in me, how is it impacting that? We could, we could ask question after question after question. If the Son of God is alive in us because we've been united to Him in His death and His resurrection, how is that impacting my response and your response to every situation of life? Because the Son of God is alive in us. And so our response ought to be renewed and changed in the likeness of our Creator. Perhaps, perhaps we could say it this way. There is no place in life that is not impacted by going from slavery to freedom. There is no place in life that going from being dead to being alive doesn't change. What about us isn't impacted by what Christ has done in us by dying and rising and uniting us to himself in that death and resurrection? And of course, the flip side of this statement is, you know, if, if we aren't living like the Son of God, if we don't see any difference in our lives, if our lives tend to look exactly like the lives of the people around us who, who don't have faith, who haven't been united to the Son of God, who don't have the Son of God living in them, what fruit do we see? If there's no fruit, if there's no change, if there is no change, if a dead body still looks like a dead body, or as, or as Dr. Rogers said, if, if the body is still wrapped in its grave clothes, have we been changed? Is the Son of God at work in our lives? Have we been united to Christ Jesus? Have we responded in faith to the Son of God so that we know we have been united to Him? Do we desire that? If we don't desire the things of God, if we see no evidence of the work of the Spirit in us, then we need to ask, have we abandoned ourselves on our Savior Jesus Christ? Are we just left saying, yes, I think there's a God, or have we really abandoned ourselves to our Savior so that we see His works, His life being lived out in us by His Spirit? 
think Paul, Paul summarizes both sides of this application for us just a few pages earlier than Galatians 2. 2 Corinthians 13, right at the end of the chapter, Paul says this in verses 5 through 7, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. This isn't random questioning so we can sort of dig up this doubt and assurance. Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about you, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail to meet the test? But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. You see what Paul is saying? Jesus Christ is in you. And if Jesus Christ is in you, that makes a difference. So test yourself, examine yourself to see whether the Son of God is living in you. Is Jesus Christ alive in you? And is it evident as we walk through the moments and the decisions of our lives? I think, well, this is an uneasy question to ask ourselves. It's also why we should never tire of hearing the gospel. We should never tire of hearing the gospel in our lives. See, as we grow in Christ the gospel continues to reveal new areas where we need to be brought into conformity with who Christ is. It's like peeling back the onion. I remember I've told many people that when I got married, I thought to myself, of course, subconsciously, I wouldn't say this out loud, but I'm in a pretty good spot. Well, I don't have any obvious sins I can think of that are really going to, you know, destroy our marriage and then, you know, peel back the layers And very quickly we realize the sins and the selfishness that are at play in us. That's a process that continues throughout our lives, but it's a process also that continues as we draw closer and closer to Christ. So as we hear the gospel again and again, as we see Christ more clearly and more fully, that shines on our lives and we see our sin more clearly. And the more we see our sin, the more we're driven back upon Christ, who is our gospel hope. And the more we're driven back to Christ, the more we see where we still are imperfect and the cycle continues. And so we should never tire of hearing the gospel and never tire of seeing Christ and drawing near to Christ. This is the ongoing process of the renewing image of God at work in us. It's the process of being dead to sin and alive to God. Well, as we come to the end of the passage, you can say... That we are accepted by God because by faith alone we are united to Jesus Christ. This truth, says Paul, doesn't enable sin. Rather, this great truth, when we really believe it, when we let this reality sink into our hearts, must lead to an outburst of praise to our God. It must lead to the only security and assurance and joy we can have because it rests on Christ's finished work and our union to Him, not our own. And it will lead to a repentance, to greater and greater areas where we will desire to live more faithfully the Son of God as we live our lives by faith and His life is lived through us.